Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me today. Today is August 28th, and we are talking about reimbursement and subrogation in New Jersey. So thanks for jumping in. Uh, this is a completely live webinar. So if you're coming to this webinar live, I'm hoping it's so that you've got some questions, and I'm hoping you're going to ask those questions. Um, this is meant to be interactive, and it's the most fun when it's interactive. So please type your questions in as I go through today's topics. And our topics are going to be reimbursement and subrogation, and that's in the general risk transfer context. And I'm going to try to address these topics within the uh, parameters of the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act with the purpose of really trying to break them out into two different things because these are two entirely different uh, ways of getting your money back. And sometimes they get just mashed together. I've even had attorneys who said to me, is there a difference between reimbursement and subro, Greg? My client just has a subro department. And I'm like, well, that's cute. Uh, but they are two different concepts. They operate differently. There's different risks and rewards with both of them. And so I do want to talk about them uh, from that perspective of trying to explain the difference, why you do one rather than the other, and what you can do and what your options are. So let's talk about reimbursement first. Under New Jersey Workers' Compensation Law, Section 40 of the statute, you have an absolute right to reimbursement. Uh, this is different than subrogation. So sub reimbursement is the petitioner in your New Jersey workers' compensation case has filed a civil action. They've brought a claim against some party that they are claiming harmed them. Uh, and then we have a derivative right to be reimbursed from the proceeds of whatever that lawsuit are up to the amount that we spend or pay or are exposed for in the New Jersey workers' compensation case. So that's what reimbursement is. Now, New Jersey, the section of the statute that controls your rights is called Section 40. And so oftentimes, you'll hear parties just referring to a Section 40 lien. What does that mean? A Section 40 lien is your right to reimbursement for all of the amounts that you've paid for medical, indemnity, that would be wage replacement, and then future permanency, or permanency that's already been adjudged, in the workers' compensation case. And Section 40 essentially says that you, the carrier or employer, have the right to get back everything you've paid in a workers' compensation context uh, when the uh, uh, petitioner has made a recovery in a civil action. That could be a, a recovery, by the way, doesn't just mean a settlement. They could have a judgment, uh, et cetera. So, that, you know, there are different things there beyond just a settlement. Or you think award, meaning went to judgment, went to trial and received money. You have a right to be reimbursed uh, from that, uh, those proceeds uh, to the extent that you can. So if they've recovered a million dollars and you only paid $50,000 in the workers' compensation case, you're entitled to recover everything or be reimbursed for everything you paid in the workers' compensation case with two minor um, uh, deductions. And the deductions are for the attorney's fee for a petitioner's attorney uh, and for the uh, uh, costs of that lawsuit up to $750. So those costs of suit are limited. This is not a self-executing uh, statute. Section 40 does not operate on its own. If you have a right to reimbursement in a New Jersey workers' compensation case, you have to assert that right. You can't just sit back and wait for petitioner's attorney or the plaintiff in the third-party action to contact you because they have no duty 
to either get your consent to a settlement in a workers' compensation case in New Jersey, and they have no duty whatsoever uh, to let you know that this is happening. So you want to assert your right to reimbursement, and once you've asserted that right to reimbursement, then they have to respond. So Section 40 is not self-executing. Uh, the parties will try to ignore their Section 40 application if they can. Um, this is very different or can be contrasted with New York, right? New York Section 29, which operates similar to Section 40, is self-executing and it's automatic. You know, the, the claimant in a New York workers' compensation case can't settle their civil action without your consent. That's very different in New Jersey. There is no um, need for us to provide consent. We don't have that opportunity. So the first question you should be asking in your New Jersey workers' compensation case, hey, is there a potential for a third-party recovery? Uh, is there some actual tortfeasor, someone who actually harmed my employee? And the places to look are I mean, the obvious ones. The obvious ones is a motor vehicle accident involving some other party that struck our vehicle and harmed our employee. Uh, slip and fall, so you're thinking about landlord, premises, whoever, whoever was in charge of maintaining, controlling, or um, being in charge of the, the premises that the employee slipped on. Another example would be products liability cases. The employee was harmed by a product that could be a machine, that could be a chemical, a tool that was either manufactured defectively or mislabeled or just unsafe or for whatever reason they have a products liability claim. And then I also want us to keep in mind that we do have a right of reimbursement in New Jersey for any medical malpractice claims uh, that are filed by the petitioner. If the petitioner um, gets injured at work and then gets medical care with a physician and the physician harms them during the course of their care, they don't um, you know, treat them according to the standard of care, they might have a medical malpractice claim against that physician and then we would have a derivative right to reimbursement against the proceeds of any um, judgment or award they received in that action. So all of those moments are times when we should be thinking, wait a second, do I have a right here to be reimbursed? Uh, is there an actual tortfeasor? Did someone actually harm my uh, claimant? You know, the, the first thing we're going to look, look at to figure this out is, did the petitioner file a lawsuit against someone, right? Um, how do we know if they filed a, a, a lawsuit? Um, it's very easy in New Jersey. New Jersey has an opening civil docketing system, so we can search that and determine if they filed a claim against anyone else. So that's what we're going to look to. How do you save those rights under Section 40? How do you preserve them? Because remember, I told you, Section 40 is not self-executing. Section 40, uh, unless you affirmatively do something to assert your right, oops, drop my clicker, unless you do something to uh, 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 protect that right, you're going to lose that right. So how do you protect it? Uh, the simplest way is to send a letter to all parties, putting them on notice. Like, hi, have you filed the civil action? If so, I demand to be reimbursed. This is actually more challenging than it seems in this jurisdiction because uh, usually they'll have different attorneys representing them in the civil action than they will in the New Jersey workers' compensation action. And for that reason, we'll usually put the workers' compensation attorneys on notice and say, hello, we see the potential for a civil suit here. Did you file it? And they'll often respond and say, we are not handling it, but here's the law firm that is. And so we'll be able to figure it out that way. And then we will then serve that letter again on all the parties in that case. And we're not just going to serve it on the attorneys representing uh, the petitioner in that action. We're also going to serve it on all the respondent or defendant, the law firms, the, the defendants themselves, to make sure everybody knows, hey, we're asserting our right here. Don't go settle around us. That's a problem for us. So we want to put every party on notice as soon as possible. And then we're going to keep track 
of that civil claim. And this is not uh, costly or time consuming. We're doing it as a matter of course. We're just jumping into the civil docket. It's all electronic and we're just seeing what's the progress of this case. I don't want to really be relying on the petitioner's workers' comp counsel to tell me what's going on in the civil docket. I want to know that information. And oftentimes that when I walk into a pretrial conference and I know, hey, that case is about to settle or it just settled, that's good information for me to bring uh, because it helps us determine, hey, what's our overall settlement exposure and liability going to be in this case? So the big question is how much do we get back? The petitioner goes out and files a claim against somebody else. What am I allowed to recover? And the answer is uh, to determine that I need to know what you paid. And so this is the moment where I turn to my own client. I say, hello, I need a payment ledger. I need to see all the medical and the indemnity uh, and then any permanency you've paid. Potentially, potential, uh, permanency has already been reached. So I need to see all of that. I need to see the payment ledger. Now, I've seen payment ledgers that include everything. They include defense attorney costs. They include uh, surveillance costs or investigators or all sorts of things. And you know, we have to go through that and just make sure, no, we're only looking at medical, true medical, true indemnity, and the true permanency. Um, the carrier costs or the investigatory costs or the claims handling costs, are, we can't include those in what we get back. So we're going to remove out all those administrative expenses. Please take out the IME costs. Uh, the IME is not considered a medical cost for the purpose of asserting our demand for reimbursement. Now we get back everything that's been paid in the workers' compensation case with two deductions. The first deduction is a deduction for the percentage of attorney's fee that was paid. So the attorney's fee as a, as a percentage, as a cost of litigation percentage, comes out of our workers' compensation recovery. And that's fair, right? We want that attorney representing the plaintiff in the civil action to go out and grab as much money as they possibly can uh, and then get, return it to us, right? So they're due a fee. Now, New Jersey is interesting because New Jersey has a mandatory statutory bodily injury uh, plaintiff's attorney's fee scale. And I can't recall the whole thing off the top of my head, but I think it's a third up to the first $750,000. And then it's 25% for the next half a million dollars. And then after that, it goes down. And so what you end up getting when you get the um, statement of the costs and the attorney's fees from plaintiff's attorney is you see that the fee actually is usually less than 33% where the recovery is over $2 million. And that's because they're getting 33% on the first million and then they're getting like 25% on the next million and, and it's got a, a sliding scale that reduces as it gets higher. Case law in New Jersey, Sanchez versus New Jersey Transit says that we take the average of all of the uh, fees segments that are paid to the claimant's attorney, to the petitioner's attorney in that civil action. We take the average of that and that's what we use to discount or, or serve as our deduction from our recovery. So it's a little bit complicated, but in practice, it's actually pretty simple. And the other deduction from our reimbursement is for 700, up to $750, not guaranteed $750, up to $750, which is what the uh, plaintiff's attorney has paid in court costs and preparing that case for a hearing or trial. So those would include things like medical experts, obtaining medical records, uh, getting transcripts, any of the costs associated. And it's interesting that in so many New Jersey workers' compensation cases, there are not even $750 because no um, civil suit is actually even filed. So take a look at that. Make sure that there are actually $750. Sometimes there's not even that amount of uh, further deduction. So the only deductions that come out of your New Jersey right to reimbursement are one, 
uh, the plaintiff's attorney's fee, and that's going to be deducted from our maximum lien as a percentage uh, multiplied times our, our uh, maximum recovery, and up to $750, and that's for court costs and fees. So if the third-party award is less than the amount of payments we make, we get back everything we paid, less attorney's fees and costs, right? So that makes sense. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a gigantic amount or much less, we're still going to be recovering something. It just won't be as much as, as, as if they had a giant award. We would still retain, if we've paid out dramatically less than they recovered in the civil action, we're gonna still retain a credit going forward into the future. So in the future, should permanency be found or permanency be reached or increased later, because you remember in New Jersey, they love reopeners here, uh, we would then be able to assert that credit against uh, future payments going into the future. So that's how that works. How do we maximize reimbursement? Well, just a couple things I wanna go through with you when you're thinking about how much reimbursement you're entitled to. Please wait for an offer before you start talking about how much reimbursement you're going to demand from the proceeds of that civil action. I've had so many cases where plaintiff's counsel has called me up and they say, hey, I think I could get a million dollars in the civil action but the only way the math will work is if you guys reduce your lien from 750,000, let's say, to 600,000. Would you be willing to do that? Because then I could go, and I say, hey, that's cute, uh, but I don't really like to talk about what we're gonna do in terms of compromising or negotiating our reimbursement until I see that you have a firm offer. Because I know what they're gonna do. They're now gonna go to the defendant in the civil action and say, well, comp will do this if you do that. And they get all the parties negotiating against themselves, and we don't want to be involved in that. So my first piece of advice is, generally speaking, don't try to compromise, negotiate, or in any way reduce your lien uh, or your reimbursement demand until after you get firm offers from the defense in the civil action. Not wise uh, to start negotiating against yourself earlier, becoming part of those negotiations. Uh, the second thing uh, is that petitioners, attorneys, will make these threats like, well, you realize, Greg, if you don't negotiate on your lien, my client might get nothing in the civil action uh, because the attorney's fees will come to me and the, the civil action recovery is not that small, it's not that large. And so for that reason, there's not going to be any fresh money moving in the civil action to my plaintiff. They're just going to abandon that case. Uh, no. Okay, no. I, first of all, I've been at this for over two decades. I haven't seen anyone abandon a viable civil action uh, because their client wasn't going to get a double recovery, because that's what they're really asking you for. They're really saying, hey, uh, my petitioner already got all their money in comp, and we got this small civil award, and probably the reason it's small is because there's either a small pocket there or maybe a $50,000 liability policy, something really small. And they say, look, there just isn't that much money moving. Would you waive a portion of your lien so my uh, client, the plaintiff, can somehow get some money? And I can say, no, that's not how it works. And then they threaten. I say, well, I'm threatening you. I'm going to abandon it. First of all, I've never seen them do it. And the second thing is they have an ethical duty to prosecute that case. You know, that's kind of ridiculous uh, as a threat. And I have never seen that threat, you know, fully carried out. The other thing I've seen um, is the claimant's attorney saying, well, in this jurisdiction, they start like this. They say, I've been doing this for 50 years, and we've always just done a third, a third, a third. Uh, I get a third from the civil action. You, the carrier, get a third, and the claimant themselves gets a third, 
and you know you compromise down your maximum recovery so that at least they get some money. And I look at them and go, no, that's not a rule. That's not in a statute or a case anywhere. I appreciate that people have been conciliatory towards you in the past and been really nice. That's great, but those people are silly hearts. You're not entitled to a third, or the, I'm sorry, the claimant's not entitled to a third. That's just not how it works. The statute's designed to prevent double recovery, not encourage it. You know, there is no rule that says this. So when they start threatening you and say, well, I've done this for 100 years, and it's always a third, a third, a third, that's just simply not true. Okay, that's just bluster. That's just argument. They're just positioning. So you can just basically ignore that. All right, some other ideas about maximizing reimbursement. Sometimes we have access to great information uh, in when we're defending our case. I have uh, incident reports. I've got an investigation report. Maybe I have a video of the actual accident that takes place because we've got videos maybe inside of our trucks or inside of our facility. And so I've got a great video that could really help out the plaintiff and help them maximize the value of their recovery. Of course, I'm going to help them with that, right? Of course, I'm going to try to provide that information because here's a weird situation where we're actually actually aligned with the plaintiff. The more money they get in that civil action, the more money to pay me back, right? So up to a point, I'm going to be very cooperative and I'm going to be trying to give them as much information as possible. Um, the other thing that we can do is suggest and help them. I mean, I've seen uh, third-party cases where my uh, the plaintiff's attorney is, you know, maybe a little green, less experienced, less seasoned maybe, and they've said, oh, I got an offer for 50000 I think I'm going to take it because liability stinks. And I'm like, what? You don't have a liability expert. Go get a liability expert. Here's the one I've seen in other cases. Go use them, and that will help you build up your case. And that helps them recover more money, which then helps us. So, again, we're not always adversarial to the plaintiff in the civil action. We might want to use our experience to actually help them, give them information they didn't have. Some kinds of cases, we might have more experience defending them uh, from our perspective, so I can give them maybe the best expert to use or the best piece of information or say, hey, focus on this. Uh, so just remember that this is a moment where we might want to help and train them. Um, we also might have relationships with the defense counsel on the other side that plaintiff's counsel doesn't. And we're comfortable calling them up and just saying, look, I've I'm I'm got the comp seat here. I think liability sinks. You should really look at this and really give them a little bit of information too. Um, now, sometimes we're seen as a neutral observer, and you know, sometimes when we go to reach, if there's a mediation, you know, we can come in and say, look, we're here just for the to protect our lien, our maximum recoverable amount, and here's how I see it, mediator, judge, and sometimes they're, we're giving them information that they don't maybe necessarily know, or they see us as neutral, and so they're going to maybe give us a little bit more credence. So we do think that going to the mediations or settlement conferences might be useful, particularly in a high exposure case where you're going to get a lot of money back just to make sure that you're fully protected. All right, so that's reimbursement. Now let's turn to the second part of today's conversation. And the second part of today's conversation is about subrogation. Subrogation is different. These are all coming under the, the title or the chapter title, risk transfer, but subrogation is different. In subrogation, we can, and by the way, under Section 40, we are allowed to subrogate in New Jersey. We stand in the shoes of the plaintiff, right? We are now, the plaintiff has a right to pursue a claim for bodily injury or harm or medical malpractice against an actual tort fees, but for whatever reason, they're choosing not to do it. Right? And there's lots of reasons they choose not to do it. And so then we say, okay, well, we're going to step into your shoes and we're going to file that claim on your behalf and we're going to become your plaintiff's attorney and we're going to get this great recovery to protect my client. 
Okay, so that's something we can do. Now I have the same rights as the claimant or the petitioner when I bring that civil action, right? I have, I, it's as if the petitioner brought that civil action themselves, but there are some limitations on that. The first is I have the same statute of limitations that the petitioner has, and the statute of limitations in New Jersey for bodily injury is two years. So we don't get two years from the day that we started defending the comp case or two years from the day we decided to subrogate. We get two years from the date of accident uh, to step in and file that subrogation action. So we don't want to miss that. The other limitations are I have to contact the adversary, uh, the, uh, the claimant, and remember, they don't have an attorney, and I have to tell them, hey, unless you file a civil action, I'm going to file one on your behalf. I have to give them advance notice. I have to give them a warning, okay? And that warning has to give them at least 30 days. So when I decide that I'm going to subrogate under Section 40 in New Jersey, I have to give uh, the claimant a heads up, I'm going to do this, and then I have to give them time to go find an attorney, which means we really have to file that notice long before the statute of limitations is going to expire so that we have the right to actually file the protective suit and make sure it's in place. Now, what kind of cases can we subrogate? Well, basically anything, right? Anything uh, subject to the jurisdictional limitations. So the same types of motor vehicle accidents, the same kind of slip and falls, medical malpractice, product liabilities cases, all of them we can subrogate. Uh, I want to keep the top of mind that we can subrogate medical and legal malpractice cases that arise from the workers' compensation case because that's a necessary thing to think through. It doesn't happen that often, but iatrogenic or medical malpractice injuries are one of the leading causes of injuries in America currently, so it's something that we should definitely keep our eyes on. Now, there's some problems with subrogating cases in New Jersey, and the first one is I am now in one court the defense attorney who's saying this person's ready for the Olympics, they're fine. And then in another court, I'm saying, wow, they're in terrible shape and we need to uh, pay them millions and millions of dollars so that, by the way, my client can get paid back. So uh, one of the problems I have is cooperation of the claimant. Uh, on one context, I'm opposing them in the workers' compensation proceeding in New Jersey Workers' Comp Court. And then in another context, I'm representing them and I'm trying to maximize uh, recovery. So that's a problem. Uh, it's really problematic when they're unrepresented in the workers' compensation case. And the reason that's really problematic is because they just get confused. They just think, wait, uh, is he my attorney today? Is he not? Is he on my side? Is he against me? Uh, all those kinds of problems. There's also some ethical issues here. And the ethical issue is that when I am subrogating on behalf of a claimant, I am actually not interested in getting the maximum recovery I can possibly get for them. I'm only interested in getting enough of a recovery so that my client is made whole. So if their case, their civil action is worth $100 million for pain and injury and suffering and loss of consortium and all these and loss of wages, all this stuff, I, and, but I've only paid out $50,000 in my workers' compensation case, I actually am only required to go and try to subrogate to the purpose where I get my $50,000 back, and I don't care about the giant award that they could personally get. So that puts me in an ethical problem where I own a duty, I owe a duty to my client, but my client's um, reimbursement right is very small. I'm pursuing a right on behalf of the claimant, and they could recover a giant amount, but I'm not ethically really required to go get that giant amount. I could settle the case for far less than it's worth as long as my client's made whole. So I don't like that. It's unethical. It doesn't feel ethical, even though it is. And so for all of those reasons, what, I've, what we typically see happen is once we send the notice, uh, the Section 40F notice to 
uh, the claimant or their attorney, and we say, listen, you have the right to file a civil action. We see the statute of limitations is approaching a year from now. We don't see you doing anything to uh, you know, obtain that civil recovery. So we're going to step into your shoes in 30 days, and I'm going to file a case on your behalf, and I'm going to prosecute it because I think there's money there. Nine times out of ten that I send that letter, they go and lawyer up and file the suit themselves, which is great, right? Because it saves me from all the problems of cooperation and the ethical conundrums and all the challenge and using our time, which is costly, to go pursue this potential case, uh, recovery. And you know, now they've got an attorney working on a contingency. That's great. That's nice and efficient for us. So really what happens when we file that subrogation notice often is it pushes the petitioner in the workers' compensation case to go find an attorney. And, you know, they're going to go find an attorney who advertises during daytime TV and, you know, advertises on bus stop benches. So they're going to get somebody who does a lot of plaintiff's work and hopefully has an efficient system uh, for obtaining a maximum recovery as fast as possible. So for all those reasons, we really prefer, if even when we file a subrogation notice, even when we decide to subrogate, when they say, no, I'm going to take control of this back and I'm going to jump in and file my own claim. And that's allowed and that is actually encouraged uh, because it's more efficient overall. So that's a little bit about the difference between reimbursement and subrogation. I kind of try to look at them as two really separate ideas so that we can start to think about how we can maximize our uh, recovery in our cases and reduce exposure by deploying one or the other. All right, let's move into some questions. I'm hoping there's some good questions today. Let's take a look, opening up the question pane now. Oh, I got some questions. All right, so Gail says, Greg, if we, this, this type is so small. Greg, if we per pursue subrogation and the claimant does not, does that bar them from recovering after we settled for X amount? Yes, right, that's the danger. So I could go and tell them, hey, look, your case might be worth, and then, by the way, I put this in my letter to them, putting them on notice. I say, just so you know, I am not obligated to recover the maximum amount possible. I'm only going to be looking to um, make my client whole. And that's really the motivating language. But the truth is if I st step into a case and I subrogate and I move all the way forward to settlement award or trial and we recover amount of money, I sign the settlement documents, it's over. Uh, that's not something that's re judicata. They can't reopen that case and file it again, even if the amount they recovered is not maybe is maximized for them. It's efficient for the employer carrier. It's not so great for the claimant, but that's how the law works. All right, Peggy says, uh, occasionally the employer doesn't want to subrogate for personal reasons. Can this be considered? Yeah, absolutely, right? So I, there's so many employers that say, come to me and say, Greg, I've been working 10 years to build up my client list and I'm providing services to all these clients. And I had a, one of my employees has a slip and fall on their properties while they're servicing a machine or or doing something on one of their property or making a delivery. Great, I don't want to sue my own customers. I don't want to. I don't want to bring this action. Okay, that's your choice, right? You're deciding not to uh, minimize your workers' compensation exposure in that circumstance. Uh, and so I hear that all the time. Hey, Greg, we don't want to sue our own customers. Hey, Greg, we don't want to sue the property owners that we service. Hey, Greg. Uh, you know, I, this is this is a big account for me. I don't want to start pull, dragging them into litigation. Those are all valid reasons why people do not uh, want to subrogate. Uh, now, the question is always, do they have the control of that? Um, you know, do they have the ability to tell the carrier, no, you can't subrogate on my behalf? Uh, generally speaking, that's something that would have to be negotiated between the insured and the insurer. Uh, in the context that we work, uh, we defend both insurers 
and we also defend self-insureds. You know, for self-insureds, they're making the decision, and they, they have a policy on it, or they make a one-by-one one one decision on that, that's fine. Uh, for our carrier clients, though, usually the, uh, the, the insurer doesn't have the right or the ability to uh, say, no, don't segregate this. So it's really gonna come down to what's in that contract and what type of employer it is, self-insured versus not self-insured. So great questions. Thanks, Gail, and thank you, Peggy, for asking them. I love questions, it makes it so much more fun for me. All right, uh, I'm gonna let everybody go. Um, that's everything we got for today. I hope everyone has a great rest of your week. Uh, it's raining here in New York, and uh, it's hopefully gonna be a little bit nicer for Labor Day weekend. I'm not gonna see you guys. Have a great Labor Day weekend. Have a wonderful holiday. Bye, everybody.